Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, March 4th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg reveals he has terminal cancer. Nobel laureate Elise Baliaski is sentenced to 10 years in Belarusian prison. The G20 summit again ends with no agreement over Ukraine. New leaked texts show UK government officials mocking people in hotel quarantine. The US Department of Justice rejects Trump's claims of lawsuit immunity. Argentina urges the UK to resume negotiations over the Falkland Islands. Tennessee curbs gender reassignment treatment and drag shows for minors. The U.S. says executives should pay for corporate misconduct. Newcastle's 305 million pounds Saudi takeover faces fresh scrutiny. And a report suggests half of the world could be overweight by 2035. In our top story, the Pentagon Papers whistleblower Ellsberg reveals he has terminal cancer. Here are the facts as agreed upon by U.S. News & World Report, Associated Press, Common Dreams, and New York Times. Daniel Ellsberg, the whistleblower who famously leaked the Pentagon Papers, a series of documents that revealed U.S. government falsehoods during the Vietnam War, announced Thursday he's been diagnosed with terminal cancer and has only several months to live. In a letter first shared with close friends before being circulated on social media, the 91-year-old said he was diagnosed with inoperable pancreatic cancer and that doctors said he had three to six months to live. He also revealed he will not undergo chemotherapy and plans to accept hospice care when needed. Despite the diagnosis, Ellsberg said he's not in physical pain, adding, quote, in fact, after my hip replacement surgery in late 2021, I feel better physically than I have in years. Reflecting on his life's work, he wrote, I had every reason to think I would be spending the rest of my life behind bars after leaking the Pentagon Papers. It was a fate I would gladly have accepted if it meant hastening the end of the Vietnam War, unlikely as that seemed and was. Ellsberg was charged with multiple violations of the Espionage Act and faced 115 years in prison for the leaks. However, the case against him was dropped in 1973 after it was revealed that his psychiatrist's office had been broken into to find information that might discredit him. He has since been an avid defender of other whistleblowers. Ellsberg has also been a decades-long campaigner for nuclear disarmament. In his post, he vowed, I will continue as long as I'm able to help these efforts. Eric, thank you for the facts of that story. Here on our podcast, we like to separate the facts from the narrative spin. You just heard Eric lay out the facts. I'm going to start off with our first narrative spin provided by Common Dreams. Ellsberg should be remembered for his brave actions that inspired a generation of whistleblowers and activists. He has been a beacon of integrity and truth and has used his kindness to fight for a better world. This is devastating news and he will be sorely missed. Narrative B coming from New York Times. Although he's celebrated as a hero, Ellsberg's legacy should be far more mixed. Both Congress and the executive branch have rigorous whistleblowing mechanisms for disclosing wrongdoing and important information. But he stepped outside those options to leak highly sensitive documents to the press. He violated the law and his oath to secrecy. Loose lips sink ships, Adam. Loose lips sink ships that get cancer. Huh? No, that doesn't, that doesn't quite flow off the tongue like as much as it should, does it? No. No, it doesn't. Uh, ships get cancer? 
No? No. No. Okay. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. And news out of Belarus, a Nobel laureate has been sentenced to 10 years for smuggling. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, NBC, Axios, and DW.com. Nobel Prize winner Elise Baliatsky on Friday was sentenced to 10 years in prison by a Belarusian court for smuggling and financing actions grossly violating public order. He was arrested in 2021 for allegedly smuggling cash to fund opposition activity in Belarus. Beliatsky co-founded the Vyazna, or Spring, human rights organization, and faced sentencing alongside three of his colleagues. Valentin Stefanovic was sentenced to nine years, Vladimir Lepkovich got seven, and Dmitry Solovyov received eight. The four defendants who maintained their innocence were held in a caged enclosure during the private trial after spending 21 months in prison. Baliatsky was one of three Nobel Peace Prize winners in 2022. He won for his work promoting democracy and human rights in Belarus, sharing the award with Russian and Ukrainian human rights organizations. According to some rights groups, around 1,500 people in Belarus are in prison for political reasons, many for their role in the 2020 protests of President Lukashenko's electoral victory. Thank you for the facts, Adam. We have two spins, and Narrative A is the first one coming from The Guardian. For more than 25 years, the Vyazna Group has worked to promote human rights, making it a thorn in the side of Lukashenko, and gaining notoriety within the rules-based international community. Now the president has made Bialyatsky and his pro-democracy colleagues into political prisoners for fighting back against his tyranny. And Narrative B, provided by TASS. Despite the mischaracterization of Western nations and institutions, Bialyatsky and his colleagues are being punished for committing serious crimes. The Vyazna Group smuggled money across countries to fund disturbances and gross violations of public order in Belarus, disguising these acts as charitable human rights activities. As the conflict in Ukraine continues, we look at day 373. The G20 summit again ends with no agreement over Ukraine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Independent, TASS, and Ukraine Forum. Repeating the outcome of last year's summit in Indonesia, a meeting of G20 foreign ministers ended on Thursday without consensus on the war in Ukraine. Subramanyam Jashankar, the foreign minister of India, this year's host, said there would be no joint statement because of divergences on the issue, which we could not reconcile as various parties held differing views. America's Antony Blinken and Russia's Sergei Lavrov both exchanged blame with each other over the lack of agreement, but they still held a 10-minute discussion on the summit sidelines. According to a U.S. official who briefed reporters on their discussion, Blinken said Washington's support for Ukraine would continue for as long as the war continues. He also called for Moscow to reverse its decision to suspend participation in the New START nuclear treaty, as well as demanding the release of Paul Whelan, a former U.S. Marine imprisoned in Russia on charges of espionage. However, Maria Zakharova, spokeswoman of Russia's foreign ministry, said she discussed the Blinken exchange with Lavrov, who said the matter of Whelan was not raised. Everything that was said yesterday in the State Department that Blinken expressed concern about the situation around the U.S. citizen was a lie, Zakharova said. 
unbelievable behavior of the U.S. administration. Meanwhile, on the ground, Russia appears to be closing in towards its objective of capturing the Donetsk city of Bakhmut. Yevgeny Prigozhin, head of the Russian mercenary group Wagner PMC, said on Friday that his fighters had practically surrounded the city. A day earlier, he also published a video that showed fighters raising the Wagner flag over a heavily damaged building in the east of Bakhmut. Ukrainian officials said two civilians were killed and five more were injured in Russian attacks on the Donetsk region over the past day. Meanwhile, one civilian was reported killed in the Kharkiv region, while one civilian was killed and 12 others were injured in attacks on Kherson. The death toll from an earlier attack on the Zaporizhia region has risen to five people. Pro-Russia officials also said one civilian was killed and another was injured in Ukrainian attacks on Donetsk. Thank you, Eric. We have three rounds of narrative spins for this story. Our pro-establishment narrative is provided by AP News. The U.S. and its allies must continue to call on Russia to end its war of aggression and withdraw from Ukraine for the sake of international peace and economic stability. Unfortunately, Russia marred the G20 meetings with its failure to accept responsibility for its illegal invasion. The pro-Russian narrative is coming from TASS. The U.S. launched multiple wars in faraway places, including Iraq, Syria, and Libya, to protect its supposed national security threats. When Russia does the same on its territorial border, after 10 years of warning that this would end badly, America pretends to care about international sovereignty. This is blatant hypocrisy. And occasionally we get statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the folks of the Metaculous Prediction community. They have one for this story stating that there's a 26% chance that the next Russian leader will disapprove of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. When are they expecting to get a new Russian leader? I think there's a 3% chance that there's going to be a new Russian leader during this Ukrainian situation. Chances are. And another story regarding the UK lockdown files showing government texts that mocked people in hotel quarantine. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Spectator UK, Sky News, and The Telegraph. Another batch of WhatsApp messages between UK ministers and officials appear to show Cabinet Secretary Simon Case and former Health Secretary Matt Hancock joking about travelers being locked up in shoebox hotels during the pandemic. Other messages purportedly show Hancock sharing with former Prime Minister Boris Johnson a news story about a couple who were fined 10,000 pounds, or 12,000 U.S. dollars, each for failing to quarantine after returning from Dubai, to which Johnson replied, quote, superb. A February 16, 2021 exchange shows Case asking Hancock if he knew, quote, how many people we locked up in hotels yesterday. Hancock replied, none, but 149 chose to enter the country and are now in quarantine hotels due to their own free will. Hancock also told Case that he thought they needed to get heavy with the police regarding lockdown enforcement. After a January 2021 meeting, which included then-Prime Minister Johnson, Hancock told Case that the Prime Minister is in VG, or very good, shape, and the plod got their marching orders, referring to the police. Hancock appeared to be focused on how the pandemic would help his image. In a January 2020 message, shortly after the first COVID cases emerged in China, he shared a memo with a wise friend about how his career could be propelled 
into the next league by the pandemic. Hancock says the more than 100,000 messages released to the Telegraph by journalist Isabel Oakshot, who co-authored his pandemic memoir, have been doctored to create a false story. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is reviewing his own exchanges with Hancock, but he's reportedly said his messages were very cautious. Thank you for the facts of that story, Adam. Let's look at Narrative A coming from Telegraph. These files show the inner workings of the UK health apparatus, which is led by a disturbingly power-hungry group of government officials. While Sweden was proving you could keep restaurants open and still stay safe, Hancock was searching for ways to blind Britons to outside information and force them to cower in their homes at his command. This isn't just about poor public policy, but a case study on how absolute power, coupled with a lack of scrutiny and a good dose of groupthink, can quickly lead to utter corruption and chaos. A Narrative B spin provided by Yahoo. While Matt Hancock's leaked messages are a major news story, he shouldn't be the target of collective outrage. Like governments from all over the world, the UK made mistakes during an unprecedented time of crisis while navigating unchartered territories. And Hancock was at the forefront. More importantly, the so-called lockdown files only released a portion of the messages, arousing concern that the narrative has been manipulated to coincide with a rising anti-lockdown agenda. And we have a cynical narrative coming from iNews. The lockdown files do show the corrupt and incompetent nature of the government, but no one should actually be surprised that their politicians lied to them to gain power. What this boils down to is that an amoral politician unthinkingly gave his phone to an anti-lockdown journalist. We've seen these so-called bombshell stories before, and no institutional change ever comes from it. In our next story, the Department of Justice rejects Trump's claims of lawsuit immunity. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Associated Press, Guardian, and Newsweek. In response to the U.S. Court of Appeal for the D.C. Circuit's request for its opinion, the Department of Justice on Thursday filed a brief urging the rejection of former President Trump's claim to automatic immunity from lawsuits filed over his alleged role in the January 6, 2021 Capitol riots. In 1982, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled presidents couldn't be sued for acts they do in an official capacity. Trump has argued this protects him against suits related to the speech he made prior to the Capitol riot, but District Judge Amit Mehta disagreed in February 2022. The DOJ didn't take a position in its brief on whether Trump's words incited the violence. The brief is also unrelated to a DOG special counsel investigation into whether Trump committed a crime with his attempts to overturn the 2020 election's results. Trump could be facing several lawsuits, which can be filed because of a statute that allows for damages to be paid when intimidation or force is used to prevent the government from carrying out its duties. In this case, the certification of the 2020 election votes. Representative Eric Swalwell, Democrat of California, has filed one of the lawsuits, while a group of House Democrats has filed their own suit. And two police officers, James Blassengame and Sidney Hemby, have also jointly filed a suit. In a possible misunderstanding, Trump posted a statement to social media commending the DOJ for agreeing with his position and calling for, quote, all witch hunts and hoaxes to end. Thank you, Eric. As you can imagine, we've got some political narrative spins for this story. The first is a Democratic narrative, and it's provided by MSNBC. Leave it to Trump to stretch the limits of legal protection beyond its reach. There's no doubt presidents enjoy a broad amount of immunity, 
and the DOJ has sided with him in other instances that he sought it. But inspiring violent insurrectionists to ransack the Capitol is a giant step too far. These civil suits deserve to move forward. Daily Caller gives us a pro-Trump narrative for this story. Trump has immunity, and the case against that position is thin. The DOJ isn't sure if Trump actually incited the violence, and the appeals court didn't determine whether Trump was actually doing his job while speaking to the protesters, a key point of Trump's defense. The statute they're using to go after Trump was meant to stop intimidation from groups like the Ku Klux Klan, not a sitting president. And there's also a nerd narrative on this story that says there's a 38% chance that Trump will win the 2024 U.S. presidential election if it's Biden versus Trump. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Argentina is urging the U.K. to resume negotiations over the Falkland Islands. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, Sky News, France 24, and Buenos Aires Times. Argentina's foreign minister on Thursday announced plans to resume negotiations with the U.K. concerning sovereignty over the disputed South Atlantic archipelago of the Falkland Islands, or Islas Malvinas, calling for the matter to be resolved before the U.N. Foreign Minister Santiago Cafiero informed his British counterpart, James Cleverly, of the intent in a meeting during a summit in India, prompting the latter to cite the islanders' decision to remain a self-governing U.K. overseas territory in reference to the majority support for British governance in the 2013 referendum. The move formally ends the 2016 Foradori Duncan Pact, which saw Buenos Aires and London agree to disagree over sovereignty of the islands while establishing regulation and cooperation in areas including energy, fishing, shipping, and transportation in the region. The UK Minister for the Americas, David Rutley, expressed his disappointment that Buenos Aires had decided to withdraw from the deal, arguing that it had benefited all stakeholders while also comforting the families of those killed in the 1982 conflict. Contested sovereignty over the archipelago led to a short but savage war nearly 40 years ago. Three female residents as well as 649 Argentines and 255 British soldiers were killed after Argentina launched a military operation that was later driven out by a British naval armada. Disputes over sovereignty initially emerged in 1833, when London occupied the South Atlantic archipelago. A UN resolution requiring Argentina and the UK to enter into direct negotiations over the islands was passed in 1965. Thank you, Adam. Our first spin is an establishment critical narrative coming from The Guardian. It is unacceptable that London still holds a grudge against Buenos Aires decades after hostilities took place, carrying on this imperial-era dispute that could have been solved without an economically and ethically costly war is unjust and nonsensical. The Falkland Islands remain fully independent of Britain, and it is about time to strike a deal with Argentina and return sovereignty to its inhabitants. And a pro-establishment narrative provided by Telegraph. Islanders who overwhelmingly voted to remain British decades after facing heinous aggression from Argentina have the right to self-determination under the UN Charter. It is the UK's duty to uphold it and defend them in the face of further threats. 
Aside from moral obligation, it is in the UK's interest to continue with its commitment to the archipelago as it is located in a strategically significant position near the Antarctic in the South Atlantic. In our next story, Tennessee curbs trans treatment and drag for children. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CBS, Washington Examiner, and The Hill. On Thursday, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee signed a bill banning doctors from performing transgender surgical and hormonal treatment on children, with doctors facing fines of up to $25,000 per procedure if in violation. The bill passed 77 to 16 in the GOP-controlled House late last month. The medical restrictions include an exception for patients who begin treatment before the bill takes effect on July 1st. However, the bill stipulates that treatments must end by March 31, 2024. This comes two days after Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves signed a similar law called the Regulate Experimental Adolescent Procedures Act. Several other states, such as South Dakota, have recently enacted similar legislation. Governor Lee also signed legislation banning drag shows performed in public in front of minors, with violators facing almost a year in prison and a $2,500 fine. The drag ban, to take effect April 1st, prohibits adult cabaret performances from taking place within 1,000 feet of schools, public parks, or places of worship. It expands the state's obscenity laws to include performances that feature topless or exotic dancers or male or female impersonators that appeal to a prurient interest. While supporters of the bill argue drag shows sexualize children, opponents worry about the potential chilling effect it could have, with some organizers already considering canceling or delaying performances until there is clarity around the law. Thank you, Eric. And as you can imagine, we've got some political spins on this story, a Democratic narrative provided by the ACLU. Tennessee Republicans have been clear about their disdain for transgender youth and the critical gender-affirming care they require. This is discriminatory and unconstitutional, which is why rights groups can and will challenge it in court so that marginalized children will have the same health care rights as any other Tennessean. And, of course, we have a Republican narrative coming from the blaze. Not only do gender reassignment procedures carry many risks, but they're also life-altering and irreversible. Instead of just talking about the ongoing attack on children, Tennessee Republicans have finally and justifiably gone on the offensive in the fight against these activist doctors and politicians and their abusive ideology. What are you and your family going to do on Thursday nights? I don't know. That totally, I mean, it ruins my week, man. I mean, that's that's my part-time gig. <laughs> you just invested a bunch of makeup and a new dress, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I'm Yes. I'm in debt to Mary Kay and Maybelline over this week. <laughs> uh. The U.S. Justice Department wants executives to pay for corporate misconduct. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNN. Al Jazeera, and the Los Angeles Times. Deputy U.S. Attorney General Lisa Monaco announced Thursday that the U.S. Department of Justice would unveil a new policy to relocate the cost of corporate crime into the pockets of executives. This comes as part of a larger push by the Biden administration to regulate illegal corporate actions. Monaco said to address the increasing intersection of corporate crime and national security, the DOJ's National Security Division will hire more than 25 new prosecutors to investigate sanctions evasion, corporate control violations, 
and similar economic crimes. Companies, which often pay fines to authorities to settle inquiries into wrongdoing, would instead be expected to push the financial burden away from shareholders, who are rarely complicit to corporate crimes, to executives and other employees directly involved. Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General Marshall Miller said that the so-called clawback policy, which gives companies discounts on fines if they seek to take compensation away from wrongdoers, is not new but has not been implemented correctly. He said the three-year-old pilot program will give discounts tied to the size of the clawback attempted. Firms will be able to retain a portion of that money even if they are unsuccessful, as long as they tried to do so in good faith. Monaco said the DOJ is aware that it can be difficult for companies to decide the parameters for undertaking clawbacks or come forward to the authorities. She reiterated that companies should still include the wrongdoers and supervisors who had knowledge of the activity and were knowingly ignoring the consequences. All right, this story has generated a couple of spins. The first one is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Wall Street Journal. This policy seems like a sensible step forward as national security and corporate crime increasingly become intertwined. Shareholders, who are rarely involved in wrongdoing, should not have to pay the price for the criminal activity undertaken by executives and supervisors. Between the DOJ's clawback policy and the Security and Exchange Commission's power to strip executives of bonuses, the Biden administration is taking appropriate but forceful action to combat growing white-collar crime. Also an establishment critical narrative provided by People's World. The real problem facing American society regarding white-collar crime is corporate greed as companies continue to push for higher profits, which in many cases harms both consumers and workers. Administration after administration, regulations have been cut as profits soar, but consumers and workers continue to face the brunt of a corporate world that has no checks and balances. Occasional fines, whether at the company or individual level, are no match for the exponential rise in profits and systemic corruption. You know... Why can't they have a clawback policy for the speeding ticket that I got last week? Amnesty International urges Premier League to review Newcastle's Saudi deal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Fox News, ESPN, BBC News, and Associated Press. On Thursday, Amnesty International urged the English Premier League to re-examine the legally binding promise made by Newcastle United's Saudi owners which stated that Saudi Arabia's Public Investment Fund, or PIF, was separate from the country's government. Saudi Arabia's PIF took 80% ownership of Newcastle in October 2021, with assurances that the Saudi state wouldn't control the soccer club. At that time, Premier League CEO Richard Masters confirmed this and said that Newcastle's owners could be removed if the promises were false. A recent U.S. court case concerning the PGA Tour and Live Golf described Newcastle chairman and PIF Governor Yasir al-Rumayyan as a sitting minister of the government, raising concerns over the independence of the club's ownership. A brief against Saudi-backed Live Golf called the PIF a sovereign instrumentality of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Saudi Prime Minister Mohammed bin Salman chairs the PIF, and six out of the other eight board members are government officials. Amnesty International said it's concerned that the Saudi government is using Newcastle as part of its alleged sport-washing efforts and called attention to Qatari's current bid for Manchester United. Meanwhile, Newcastle manager Eddie Howe says that he's not concerned with questions about the club's ownership and is only concerned with on-field developments. 
Newcastle has improved dramatically under Howe and its new ownership. Eric, thank you for the facts of that story. We have a pro-establishment narrative provided by Spectator. Newcastle chose to sacrifice its morals to pursue on-field success by partnering with the brutal Saudi regime. The club's recent achievements are undoubtedly tainted, as its owners have executed 157 people since PIF bought Newcastle. To make matters worse, manager Eddie Howe has buried his head in the sand, willingly becoming Saudi's latest sports-washing tool to distract from its growing human rights abuses. An establishment critical narrative is coming from the Hasahi. In today's tumultuous global environment, sports should be used to bridge the gap between divided societies rather than as a tool to polarize each other. But it seems that the West is intent on doing just that. Rather than making accusations of, quote, sports washing, attention should be focused on the positive returns that sports bring to Saudi Arabia's progressing society and its citizens. And there's also a narrative C provided by the MAG. Biased media is trying to destroy Newcastle and diminish its success by lying about Saudi Arabia's control over the club. The hypocrisy extends to so many levels as these media outlets ignore teams like Manchester United, who have taken millions from the Saudi government for years. Corrupt media outlets even ignore their own company's close ties to the regime. It's like some of the media is playing the, the part of the, uh, the grumpy neighbor who, you're not getting your ball back until for a week. Right. You hit your ball, you hit your ball in my yard, you're not getting it back, you kids. Yeah. Our final story today is a report stating that half of the world is on track to be overweight by 2035. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, World Obesity Federation, Guardian, Reuters, and NDTV. The World Obesity Federation's 2023 Atlas, published on Thursday, warns that 51% of the world's population, or more than 4 billion people, will be overweight or obese by 2035, unless serious intervention is undertaken. The report also found that childhood obesity could more than double from 2020 levels to 208 million boys and 175 million girls by 2035. It added that low- or middle-income countries in Africa and Asia are expected to see the greatest rises. Furthermore, the research predicts that if prevention and treatment measures aren't improved, rising obesity rates globally could contribute to a total economic loss of more than $4 trillion, nearly 3% of the global GDP, in the next 12 years. According to the report, obesity rates are rising globally due to multiple factors, including climate change, COVID restrictions, chemical pollutants, and highly processed foods. Describing the report as a, quote, clear warning, President of the World Obesity Federation, Louise Bauer, called for worldwide action, with the information expected to be shared with the UN next week. At least 2.8 million people reportedly lose their lives yearly due to being overweight or obese, and obesity is a major risk factor for severely chronic diseases, including diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, and cancer. Thank you, Adam, for the facts of that story, as the National Review will weigh in with its right narrative. Obesity is a complicated issue that needs more than just government regulation and policies. 
which places the blame squarely on society and outside forces to address it. Individuals need to accept personal responsibility and be willing to take concrete action because the alternative is to normalize it as an irreparable health problem, denying individuals agency over their lives and thus cementing their dependency on an imposing technocracy. And a left narrative provided by MedPage today. Genetics, cultural, socioeconomic, and environmental factors all influence an individual's risk for obesity which is why trying to address this health emergency by focusing on an individual's lifestyle choices is unfair. Obesity is a public health crisis that deserves maximum effort from policymakers, healthcare providers, and insurers to dramatically reduce its burden on people already dealing with the stress of chronic sleep deprivation, poverty or threat of poverty, and systemic racism or other trauma. The Metaculous Prediction community is giving us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 50% chance that at least 72.3% of Americans will be obese or overweight in 2030. Well, didn't they just reiterate what the article just said? I mean, that carries a lot of weight. I don't know about you. I mean, some of these facts were heavy, very heavy. I tell you, all in all, that was a whale of a story. You are the pun master, Eric. The pun master today. I'm I'm unworthy in your presence. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, March 4th, 2023. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. From each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.